This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. It's October the 1st. Thank you for listening to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. I looked at the analytics for the podcast the other day. Very exciting to see this podcast growing, thanks to you. More people are joining us, and that's awesome, because it is true what they say, the more the merrier. So please make sure you've subscribed, and please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to share with all of your friends, family, colleagues, your, I don't know, doctor, Uber driver, people walking down the street. Okay, this week is all about access to care the ability we have to get the help we need in order to get the outcome we want. So to use a human example, if I broke my arm, well, the outcome I want obviously is to get a cast and have my arm heal. But without access to care with no doctors or hospitals nearby, luckily I do have a phone, so I could Google what to do, but you know, the best I could probably do is a splint. And this is true, I don't have the slightest clue about even basic first aid, so not only will my arm not heal correctly, any complications might endanger my life pretty quickly. Those same issues with access to care exist for pet owners. Across America, in communities urban and rural, there are huge gaps when it comes to services. As easy as it is for me to go to a grocery store, buy fresh food, take a short drive to go to the vet, go to a pet supply store with enough money in my pocket to buy what my pets need. For millions of American pet owners, they have none of those luxuries. And we know that people are going to own pets. No matter where they live or how much money they have, not only can we not stop them, why would we want to? Why should geography or the current amount in someone's checking account preclude them from experiencing the same unconditional love, support, joy they get from having an animal in their lives? Everyone should get that same opportunity, right? So even things like spay and neuter surgeries can be incredibly difficult to come by in many, many places. And when the issue isn't necessarily access, it may be cost. So with our goal of ending the killing of cats and dogs in shelters, reducing intake is a big part of that. So we gotta make sure those surgeries are available. So all of that being the case, we need to figure out how to fill in these resource deserts to provide care where none exists. How do we do it? Now, I'm not a vet, I'm not a millionaire, so what can I do? That's a question our guest this week asked herself. Good morning, everyone. I think it's still morning. It's been a a busy morning here at our second wellness and vaccination clinic here in North Minneapolis. That's Shannon Glenn doing a Facebook Live a few days ago at an event they set up in one of those resource deserts. I chatted with Shannon about how she's working to provide help to those who need it. If you do not have an appointment and you're in need of pet food and supplies, you can come on over, find the U-Haul. We've got all kinds of goodies here. Before we get to that conversation, I want to make sure you know about the latest Best Friends Network Town Hall. It's a crucial discussion you won't want to miss. The title is Keeping Families Together, Navigating the Blurry Lines Between Neglect, Cruelty, and Lack of Access to Care. As I already said, we want to keep pets with their people, right? So how do we determine the difference between someone who is being intentionally neglectful and someone who just doesn't have what they need to be a successful pet parent? 
Whether you are with an organization, a shelter, a field services officer, or just someone who's out there individually rescuing animals and just seeing things in our communities, you'll want to watch this. Information on the town hall with links to watch it up on our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. My name is Shannon Glenn. I am the executive director of My Pit Bulls Family. We are home to the nation's largest database of rentals that accept all dogs, regardless of breed or size. And we work really hard to keep families together. And we use our housing data that we collect to help organizations like Best Friends do legislative efforts across the country and also provide that information to organizations that are more boots on the ground in that area so they can have conversations uh, locally with policymakers. In addition to that housing database, we do have a um, national partnership database as well. So if folks are looking for resources in their own communities, they can go to our true and trusted partners and be able to find information of what they can do if they need help surrendering, if they need help with behavior or food or resources. Um, it's there for them. All right, Shannon. So as you know, I'm a big fan of My Pitbull is Family. It's a resource that is so sorely needed. And I think as a movement, housing issues, it's just something we haven't focused on nearly hard enough. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see how much we've missed that uh, in the next few months. But tell me about the genesis of the organization. Yeah, so I am a huge political science nerd, um, <laughs> as a lot of us are, uh, especially right now. But um, back in 2011, 2012, I was student body president of my community college. And I was sitting on the desk in the office one day and I was telling my senators that I was moving to the cities and getting my first apartment. And they said, hey, well, I have some friends that do pit bull rescue. You should go check it out. And I walked in the door of a, a local pet shop and saw this beautiful white pit bull type dog named Nora. Nora actually has some health issues right now. So her family is working through that. And if they hear that, I hope Nora is doing great. But walked in, met Nora with this goofy grin, tongue hanging out, stereotypical pity face. And then went on a walk with the executive director at the time and um, a dog, I think it might have been Siri. Um, she was a one-eyed pit bull um, who ended up being my first foster. And from then it was game over. And, you know, did the rescue thing for a while, decided to take a step back because I was running for a statewide student Senate seat. Again, huge nerd. <laughs> and found this organization called My Pitbull's Family that was working on housing um, and having this huge bumper sticker campaign. So at the time, it was not a nonprofit. It was run by a pretty wealthy landlord here in Minneapolis that had one of the only Pitbull-friendly apartments. So she had this bumper sticker campaign, was sending bumper stickers throughout the whole country. I hopped on as a volunteer. When that happened, everyone kind of left, and we turned it into a nonprofit, and I've been the ED ever since. You know, I didn't know that. I guess uh, it doesn't make me feel any differently about you or the organization, but I guess I always thought you started it. I did not. Yeah, so we, when I started with my Pitbull's family, it was probably in 2012, 2013 at this point, there was a very, very small Weebly website with a couple, yep, that face says it all. Um, so a couple housing listings, they had a pretty vast 
bumper sticker distribution. And then I came on, really ramped up the database, changed the website, nonprofit status. And we've just continued to grow into this powerhouse ever since. And we're still 100% volunteer run. We have volunteers all over the country that are collecting housing research. And I think in October, we have our database cleanup. So we'll be releasing some really sexy data um, here come the end of the year. So we're really excited about it. Okay, uh, so my pit bull is family. It's around helping renters, uh, owners of all dogs, right? Not just certain breeds the owners, and I imagine many of those owners are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, but it is for anyone, regardless of income. Would you say my Pitbullist family was not necessarily driven, founded by a social justice mission? I think that's fair to say. However, I think it's, you know, historically Pitbull advocacy groups are it's advocating for the type of dog, but really we focus on the owner, right? So we know that folks that rent and that are having difficulty finding rentals maybe are in a lower social economic status. We know that the rentals that are in our database might not be affordable for everyone. I mean, I remember we were doing research in Chicago. This might've been when we did the Chicago project with best friends a couple of years ago, but I had one volunteer who lived in maybe a more ritzy part of Chicago. And there was a, an apartment. She's like, oh, that's a slumlord. They're in a bad part of town. Why would anyone want to live there? And I was like, it's an affordable rental. We don't get to pick and choose where folks live. And, you know, that could be, you know, the best apartment that someone could get, right? Um, so there's, also that affordable pet friendly housing side to the work that we do. And we really want to advocate for that and making sure that folks of any social economic status can have the pet that they want and make sure that there's supports in their communities for that too. So you are doing this work, you're helping renters find pet friendly housing. Why did you open the Pet Resource Center? Yeah. So since I started with my Pitbulls family, I have always wanted to have like a volunteer clubhouse, a space where volunteers could come, you know, help us with apartment mailers, do phone calls, and just have that community hub. I am a resident of North Minneapolis, so we decided to find a place late last year um, in the neighborhood. So we shared a space with a groomer, and then um, the landlord decided to have us stay and the groomer leave. So we have the whole building, which is fantastic. So we've been doing a lot of remodeling. And then of course, Minneapolis made national news back in May. And so we had to switch gears for a little bit to serve the community in the way that they needed it most. And now we're really back into providing pet resources to the community, but now we're just a community hub and people can ask us for whatever they need. So the original idea, not about the resource center, you just started with this this building, this place, this space for your volunteers of My Pitbull is Family to hang out. Well, I mean, I think there was always that idea of having a pet resource center. So North Minneapolis is a pretty impoverished community. It's a resource desert. We just got our first grocery store on our side of town a couple of years ago. Otherwise, it's, you know, community stores, the gas station type stores. There are no pet stores. So people really rely on grocery store for their pet food and products. And we know that they don't sell everything that people would need. 
North Minneapolis residents have a really hard time of keeping their pets at home. And now I'm lumping everybody in North Minneapolis into this bubble. But we have the highest number of owner surrenders to Minneapolis animal care and control, the highest number of strays, dog bites, dangerous dogs, loose dogs, all of those things. And so in an effort to support Minneapolis animal care and control and the team over there, we decided to open up the Pet Resource Center and provide those resources for free with no barriers um, to the community. So tell me about the Pet Resource Center. What are the services you offer? Yeah, so um, folks are able to come to us once a month. Uh, We have food, leashes, collars, all of the normal kind of supplies for dogs and cats. We also have small animal um, needs as well. But One thing that I think is unique about us and as animal welfare continues to progress maybe into this more human services case management model of things. um, So with my unique background of working in human services and running this organization. So I'm straddling social services and animal welfare all of the time. And so this is really that opportunity to bring those two worlds together. So we do provide a case management model to our folks. I'm in the process of training our advocates right now of doing a comprehensive intake process, asking those questions, really thinking about the whole home atmosphere. So the pet gets the people through the door, but then we're having conversations about what else is needed. You know, have they applied for food stamps? Are there additional benefits? Have they, are they struggling with rent? And are they doing COVID rental assistance? Like those things that our advocates are aware of and trained on um, to be able to have those conversations with people too. And what has the response been like? Um, it's been really good. Um, we have folks that, you know, come to us every month. They're telling us about, you know, their partners that had COVID or, you know, relationships that failed. I mean, they're telling us really personal anecdotes. And honestly, I really appreciate it because it helps us build that relationship with folks in the community. And after the murder of George Floyd and us hosting a community resource pop-up. So we did a human food shelf in addition to pet food. We served over 25,000 people in a span of 14 days. It was the one of the most insane things that we've ever done. We had hundreds of community volunteers, you know, thousands of people dropping off supplies. But really doing that work put our staple in the community and people know that we're here to stay we're true and trusted and folks can come to us if they need something. So this episode is focused around, as you know, access to care. And as you said earlier, you, North Minneapolis, you're in an area where basic services, businesses, they're just not there, right? You, you just got a grocery store. You said finding a fresh vegetable, a challenge, let alone things like pet retailers for supplies. So we know there isn't enough access for pet owners in urban America and rural America. So if someone's listening to this, they may say, you know what? This is needed. Nobody's doing this where I live. I'm going to start it. Awesome. It'll be a huge help regardless of where you are. But your organization is an example of one, uh, you know, you go beyond simple food. It's not just a pet food pantry. It's a more holistic approach. So people listening to this may say, awesome, I want to do that, but I don't have the human social services background and connections in the, you know, houseless community that Shannon does because of her career. So how does someone get started uh, on something like this? Yeah, I think, For me, one of the biggest things that I see that's maybe missing in animal welfare is, you know, starting programs either where you live or living where you want to start the programs. 
So, you know, using that community organizer kind of work of you can't work in a community unless you know the community. So instead of driving to and helping, it's really important that you're from there and that you're assisting your neighbors and that your neighbors know you and they trust you. We do so much with community building. I have former clients of mine from when I worked with other human service agencies now coming to us because they live in the community. And I told them years ago that I was going to start one of the first pet-friendly homeless shelters in the city, but this was the next best thing that I could do. And they're coming to like help volunteer because we talked about it years ago. It's happening. They're not only clients, they're going to come volunteer. So really making sure that the community is on board with what you're doing is also really, really important. But if you have a passion for doing it, I would just say, you know, you've got to start somewhere, whether that's sharing a small space with a groomer and being open two days a week, or, you know, driving around with your car and working with other community organizations to do pet food pantry pop-ups. I mean, we all start somewhere and we can grow from that. So I, I looked on your website and social media. Yeah, you've got some pretty big partnerships, man. Like sponsors who, I, I imagine they're pr- helping provide the supplies. Yeah. I mean, so we started doing community clinics this week or this summer, I should say. Um, so during the civil unrest here in Minneapolis, we had a volunteer. Her name was Margaret. She came with her daughter and was helping with the human food pantry. And she is a local vet. And she's like, hey, have you ever thought about doing a wellness clinic? I would really love to do that and help you navigate that. And I was like, absolutely. You know, we're just kind of getting our feet wet with what we can do. And that's definitely on my radar. And a month later, we did our first clinic with four volunteer veterinarians. And, you know, one of those vets has her own nonprofit and she does a lot of really great work in Grenada. I think it's Grenada. And she has been willing to take the lead on getting us donations and has been a huge supporter of our work. So that first clinic that we did, to put it in perspective, we served, I think it was 67 animals total. We had some people not show up for appointments and we were able to fill in 19 walk-ups And now our goal was 100. So hitting 67 was a little disheartening, but knowing that 67 pets got the care that they needed and the community was fantastic. For this Saturday's clinic, we've added a fifth vet and we have over 122 appointments booked. And so we know that the need is really great and just making sure that there's that access to care for folks in our community um, is huge. We ask for a $15 donation, but they're getting microchips vaccinations, heartworm, flea and tick, collars, food, all of that stuff, because we know that it's needed in the community. So you don't turn anyone away? No, if there's time for walk-ups, we'll definitely squeeze them in. We have vets that are going above and beyond and they're willing to stay after. What about that 15 bucks? Yeah, nope, it's suggested. So if people can do that, um, it's great. They can donate what they can. We don't have income requirements for our programming. We know that a lot of folks are struggling right now. And, you know, if us helping you with, you know, what would be a 60 bag or $60 bag of food allows you to eat for the week, that's what it's all about, right? We got to make sure that we're all supporting each other. So your vets, Margaret, I think you said her name was, she was the first and spoke up and said, hey, I'd love to do this. I love that. Uh, I think that really speaks to your network that you've been able to build and and leveraging that. And, you know, I say this on the podcast a lot. 
which is there are people in your stratosphere within your organization, supporters, volunteers, they're just there waiting to be asked. They're happy to come in and, and scoop litter trays. But if you just ask them, you might find out that somebody's a vet or they're, you know, a, a, an attorney. Uh, and all you have to do is find that person, right? Um, I think you said she approached you, but my point remains, like how important it is to have that network of people in and out of the animal welfare industry to support the work. Yeah, you really have to cultivate those relationships. You know, we we also are a rescue bank participant. So we get the discounted food from them and the greater good and they're fantastic and we love them. But after the civil unrest that happened in Minneapolis, us and another um, pet food shelf in South Minneapolis called People and Pets Together, we were able to have access to as much food as we needed to support the communities that we serve. And that's all run by a local woman. Her name's Amy. She has her own nonprofit called Feeding Furry Friends. And her whole focus is to make sure that we have the food that we need to serve the communities that we work in. And so just those partnerships and making sure that you continue having those partnerships and build those relationships and support each other is one of the biggest things that I think anyone in this movement can be doing. One of the things that this week's town hall is going to cover is the line between neglect and cruelty, or is it just that someone, the owner, doesn't have the tools to provide adequate care? How do we know the difference between those things? Like, I don't even know if I'll put this in, but I'm curious for your take on that. There are things that like you see at your clinics that, you know, how have you learned to distinguish those things? Oh my gosh. I hope that if you don't put this in, that there's at least, you just play the snippet because I think this is a really, really important conversation that folks need to be having, right? I think that this is where part of the living in the community that you serve might come in, right? So people love their pets. That love might look different in forms of care based on access to resources that those folks might have. It might also be knowledge of pet care. It might also be cultural. For example, we have folks that I know come to our clinic and they are not interested in spaying and neutering because they want to have a litter of puppies. I've had clients that we eventually did get their dogs spayed and neutered, but they were living on $99 a month and having those litters of puppies supplemented their income, but they loved their dogs and they loved those puppies and they worked their butts off to find the best homes. Like if there was a super barrier specific adoption application, like that is what they were doing for these dogs to make sure that they could find the best families that they felt were fit for these puppies. So in short, at our wellness clinics, have I had that gut reaction of, oh, there might be something going on? The answer is no. Um, I think that through having conversations and getting to know a lot of our clients and the folks that we serve, we're able to have those conversations that if something were to come up, we could just be like, hey, have you ever thought of, or here's a great resource. And most of the time they would come to us and ask us those questions. Like my dog has an infection my dog got into an altercation with the neighbor's dog because I don't have a fence. Do you happen to have a tie out? And so removing those stigmas of 
people that tie their dogs out or whatever it may be is really important when you're working in these communities and just making sure that we're able to meet people where they're at. On some level, you know, people who are turning out for a, a clinic uh, like the ones you put on, they're obviously interested in providing care. So it, it doesn't surprise me that you wouldn't see, you know, those kind of issues. But let's say you and I are driving through North Minneapolis, there may very well be things that make me uncomfortable in terms of the care provided, the care that I see. Like, you know, it's that, I would never let my dog blank. Um, I don't know, Shannon, spend most of the time outside. But truly, you know, if you think about it, the question is really like, what does outside look like? I, I think it has to be case by case. And even maybe realigning your brain as to what adequate care really means and what your meter I'm blabbing, but (laughs) you get my point. Like there are these, maybe it didn't meet my standards historically because my standards were up here really when they should have been here because that's totally reasonable. And John, I think it really comes from a place of privilege, right? I mean, we see it all the time in the Network Partners group and the American Pets Alive groups like of rescues from across the country and run by older white women. And... I would say 98, maybe that's a little high. We'll say 80% of the time, those folks have the mindset of if you can't afford it, you can't have it. And that is just so mind boggling to me these days of like, how can you be operating a rescue or an organization or a director of a municipal shelter and be involved in this movement and still have that mindset? And it's the same as like, I would rather be homeless than give up my dog. Like those two statements piss me off more than anything in the work that we do, (laughs) because you just don't know what all is going on with that family. And you're making assumptions as to what life is like being homeless or, you know, having your pet taken away because more than likely those folks have never had that happen. Are you providing access to care? Maybe you have a food pantry or you're getting spay and neuter services to people who need it through a super cool bus. Or I don't know, what are you doing? We wanna know about it. Email us here, podcast at bestfriends.org. Maybe you're an organization or shelter, you saw a need and figured out a way to meet it. Let us know, podcast at bestfriends.org. Now that does it for this week. The producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.